you, Lord. Such a privilege to be back with you guys again tonight. Uh, we love this place. Dave, thank you, man, so much for saying what you said. Uh, well, most of it anyway, but thank you. <laughs> I love me some Dave. We are, we like this, right? Like this? Not like this, like this. All right. I so appreciate that, man. We, we feel like family. And uh, this is, it's like being home in so many ways. And really for Sarah, it is like being home. We're staying at her parents' house. And like we've done for over 10 years now. We'll be married 11 years this year in September. And I, I'm already thinking about my sign. This, this, how are we going to do this? Because they keep getting better. Some of them are getting kind of intense, you know, those anniversary signs. So I'm already thinking about how to, to let you all know it's our, our anniversary. But we're just grateful and thankful. I leaned over to her tonight and I said, who would have thought 11 years ago when you were leading worship in Children's Church at this old property and I was there seeing the girl I was dating that in just a short amount of time we'd be here with you like this tonight. God is good. And I count this such a rich privilege and an honor. And you guys know how we feel about Brother Keith and Miss Phyllis and the way they have impacted our lives, personally impacted our ministry, their partnership. It's just priceless to us. And it's, it's nearly impossible to put words around it. So just to be standing here, just to be with you tonight is such a high honor. And uh, Sarah and I, when we started traveling together, which was a month after we got married... Uh, we got married, we went on our honeymoon, we took a couple of weeks off, and then our first trip together was Johannesburg, South Africa. And we spent, I don't know, two, two and a half, three weeks preaching in different places. And um, in those early days, it was, it just felt like the greatest honor in the world, you know, to be invited somewhere to speak. Because we were relatively, nobody knew us, um, and, and to get an invitation somewhere... It's like, how'd you even know, you know, and God was dealing with people and they'd give us their pulpit and say, just preach to these people. And it just felt like such a high honor. And we thought this is the greatest honor in the world is to be invited somewhere to preach. And it wasn't long after that, that I figured out there's an even greater honor and it's to be invited back. <laughs> and I realized right away, you can go anywhere once. Anybody can go anywhere one time. But to be asked back to this great place, this place that's having impact, not only in this community, not only in Sarasota, but quite literally around the world. Uh, we just are thankful to be called family. Amen? Amen? Amen. All right, here we go. Did you bring a Bible with you tonight? Would you open with me, first of all, to the book of Psalms? We'll look at quite a few scriptures tonight, but if there's any place that can handle it, and any people, I think it's probably you. Dave, I appreciate your faithfulness, man. The Bible's very clear about faithful people. I think it's the book of Proverbs that says, it's easy to find somebody who will tell you how great they are, but it's hard to find a faithful person, a faithful man who can find. I appreciate that in you and in Kim. I mean, you can go back and watch videos from the first week or so of service here. You're sitting right there. <laughs> it's a different building, but it was right there. I appreciate faithfulness. But more than me appreciating it, Jesus does. There's a great reward for it. I believe you're alive because of it. Faithfulness. Amen? Faithfulness. Psalm 92. Dave, help me out. When, there was a, a time in the history of the church when Friday night started ending a lot earlier. 
Because early on, I remember coming to see Sarah, and we came to Friday night church, and you just get comfortable because it might be 10, 10.30. Let's do it again, huh? What do you say? You want to? Listen to the nervous laughter. And the <laughs> Psalm 92. We'll see. Psalm 92. I'm going to begin by reading this entire psalm. So there you go. Now you know what we're in for. Let's begin in verse 1 tonight. Psalm 92. It says this, It is a good thing to give thanks to the Lord and to sing praises to your name, O Most High, to declare your loving kindness in the morning. You know, this ought to be the first thing out of your mouth when you get up. To declare your loving kindness in the morning and your faithfulness every night. So there you go. That's how you bookend your day right there. Here's what's coming out of your mouth when you get up. Here's what's coming out of your mouth when you lay down. His loving kindness endures forever and he is faithful. In verse 3 says, on an instrument of ten strings, on the lute, on the harp, with harmonious sound. For you, Lord, have made me glad through your work. I will triumph in the work, the works of your hands. Verse 5, O Lord, how great are your works. Your thoughts are very deep. Now you know where Dave gets it. Verse 6, a senseless man does not know, nor does a fool understand this. When the wicked spring up like grass, and when all the workers of iniquity flourish, it is that they may be destroyed forever. Verse 8 says, but you, Lord, are high forevermore. Behold your enemies, O Lord, for behold your enemies shall perish, and the workers of iniquity shall be scattered. Verse 10, but my horn you have exalted like a wild ox. I have been anointed with fresh oil. We'll come back to that. Listen to verse 11. He says, my eye has seen my desire on my enemies. My ears hear my desire on the wicked who rise up against me. The righteous shall flourish. Somebody say flourish. How do they flourish? They flourish like a palm tree. He will grow like a cedar in Lebanon. Those who are planted in the house of the Lord shall flourish. There it is again. In the courts of our God, they shall still bear fruit in old age. All the Papa said? There you go. Amen. They shall bear fruit in old age. They shall be fresh and flourishing to declare that the Lord is upright. He is my rock, and there is no unrighteousness in him. Don't you love the word of God? There's just such an anointing on the word. I mean, you could just stand and read it. This is why you and I are so instructed to be in the word day after day after day, but just simply because of the anointing that's on it. And in this psalm, he's talking to us and kind of drawing the line between them and us. He talks about in verse 6 and 7, talks about how the wicked flourish. And that doesn't need to be a discouraging thing to you and to me. And I know sometimes when you look at people and you look at it, uh, how it appears good things are going on in their lives and you scratch your head and you think, I know that guy and I know that he does not know the God that I know and yet he's got all the stuff that I'm believing God for. How's that work? I know you've been there. I have been too. But the scripture's clear about it. There is a flourishing of the wicked. Isn't that what he said? He said in verse 7, the wicked spring up like grass when all the workers of iniquity flourish. But notice this, 
It's that they may be destroyed forever. He's comparing how they flourish to how you and I are supposed to be flourishing. And he's drawing this line between us and them. Us being those who know Jesus, being those who are born again, those who live in this covenant exchange with God, and them being those who don't, who aren't. You do realize, right, there's supposed to be a difference. You get that, don't you? Okay, maybe I'm informing you. There's supposed to be a difference between those who know Jesus and those who don't. As a matter of fact, that is the biggest possible difference that could exist between two human beings. The biggest difference that exists between two humans is not skin color. It's not race. It's not gender. It's not where you are from. It's not socioeconomic status. Those things are not the biggest differences that could exist between two humans. The biggest possible difference that could exist between two human beings is one knowing Jesus and one not. One being born again and one not. That is the biggest possible difference that's supposed to exist. Did you catch that? Supposed to. It doesn't always, but it is supposed to. There is supposed to be a difference. So if you're feeling strange, good news, you are. That's why you feel this way. You're supposed to feel that way. If you're feeling not normal because of what you believe and the way you live your life and the way you talk and the church you go to, if you're feeling not normal because of all that, congratulations, you're right. You are not normal. But listen to me, normal is broke and sad and sick and depressed and confused. That's normal. Any, can I see the hands of those who long for abnormality? That's me. That's you. We are. We're different. But you have to watch out over this because you and I start thinking along these lines and we start acknowledging all these differences that we have and maybe Satan comes along and tries to magnify that and tries to convince you that not only are you different, but you're isolated. He would love for you to believe that you're different and that there's nobody else crazy like you, messed up in the head like you. Yes, you are different, but no, you're not alone. Come on, are you hearing me tonight? Yeah, you're different. We're different, but we are not alone. We're not alone in the way we believe. We are not alone in the way we walk, the way we talk, the way we live our life. We are not alone. I remember one time Sarah and I had been married, I don't know, a year, maybe two. We were living in the first little house that we had. And uh, I had an issue with the Wi-Fi, I think. So I picked up the phone to call the internet and phone company. And I got connected to this guy, this technician rep on the other end. And he answered the phone and said, hello, Mr. Pearsons, how you doing? I said, I'm doing well, how are you? And he said, oh, I'm living in the victory. I said, living in the victory? This is the Wi-Fi guy. This is the tech that's going to fix my internet problems. This is not another fellow preacher. This is not somebody in the ministry. This is the AT&T Wi-Fi guy. And when I asked him how he was doing, it just came flying out of his mouth, living in the victory. And I said, living in the victory? You sound like a faith man. 
Oh, yeah, absolutely. Well, you know where this conversation went. I have no qualms whatsoever playing the Kenneth Copeland is my papa card. Anybody else got one of those? No? They work. And uh, I, I said, uh, oh, we got to talk. I was like, I work for a ministry. And oh, what ministry do you work for? Kenneth Copeland Ministries. Are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? Kenneth Copeland. I was like, as a matter of fact, that's my grandfather. Are you kidding me right now? <laughs> that year, my family, or my, the, the ministry had sent out a ministry calendar to all the partners with pictures and quotes and all that. One month, there was a family picture of the Copeland family. And it was on this guy's desk. He's like, I'm looking at you right now. <laughs> and I just, I, I, you know, got the internet fixed and whatever, but I went away from that thinking, we are so not alone. Right. We are members of a big, growing, global family. So don't put up with that thought for even a second that you're isolated and that nobody else lives like this, talks like this, believes like this. We're a part of a family. We have a name. We are called the household of faith. That's who we are. We're a part of the family. And this is what God does. He takes those who are solitary and what's He do? He sets them in a family. The very next statement in that verse is, he brings out those who are bound into prosperity. So evidently, your prosperity and mine is dependent upon us living and functioning and being in the family that he set us in. There's supposed to be a difference, amen, between us and them. But he talks about them flourishing and then he compares it in these later verses, to how we're supposed to flourish. If they're flourishing like grass, one translation says like weeds. Anybody else familiar with how quickly weeds flourish? You go to bed one day, you wake up, and that was not there yesterday. How quick does grass come up? Huh? Man, I just mowed this stuff, and I got to do it again. It's just coming up. It's quick, it's quick, it's quick. But do you remember what Jesus said about grass? What do you say? It's here today and tomorrow it's thrown in the oven. It's out of here. It's trash. It's burned up. He said, oh, yeah, they're flourishing. They're flourishing like weeds, flourishing like grass. But here's how you and I are supposed to flourish. Verse 12, the righteous, somebody shout, that's me, shall flourish like a palm tree. That's a little different kind of flourishing than weeds and grass. Now, it may take some more time. For this thing to flourish. But when it does, it's not going anywhere. Are you hearing me tonight? There's supposed to be a difference. We flourish like a palm tree. We grow like a cedar in Lebanon. So you've got, just in the context of this one psalm, you've got the difference between us and them. You've got this line drawn between us. You've got what it's supposed to look like and how it's supposed to be different. But right here in verse 10, you find out how. Here in verse 10, you see the deciding and determining factor in what makes us different. What does he say, verse 10? But my horn, that's just a symbol of strength. You could say, my strength you have exalted like a wild ox. I have been anointed with fresh oil. 
I'm a little stirred up about the anointing. This is what makes us different. This is what we have that, check this out, nobody else does. This right here. The anointing. He said, you've exalted my strength. Let me see if I can find this in another translation for you. Listen to it from the uh, Amplified Bible, the classic. It says, but my horn, emblem of excessive strength and stately grace, you have exalted like that of a wild ox. I am anointed with fresh oil. And really you can see that's what the difference is. That's the difference between grass and a palm tree. That's the difference between weeds and a cedar. Strength. Strength. Grass might be pretty to look at for a minute, but it's not strong. It's not going to hold anything up. It's not going to fortify anything. This is the difference right here. Strength. This is supposed to be one of those things that makes us us. That's definitive about who we are and how we live. This is the deciding and determining factor right here. Living, ministering, parenting under the anointing. That's what makes us different. Now see, I grew up in a house, like I've already told you, in the household of faith. I really felt like that was a scriptural reference to my actual house. The household of faith. And so conceptually, the anointing was something we talked about. I heard about it a lot. Uh, somewhere, I think in my early teens, Papa started preaching on the anointed one and his anointing, Christ. He, what, what would he say? Translate and meditate. What's the word Christ mean? It means the anointing. The anointed one and his anointing. So I was familiar with this concept. We talked about it a lot. We talked about different people and the anointing on them or a service that was anointed or these kinds of things. But just about two or three months ago, it, came, it kept coming back up in my heart again, almost in, in, embodied in the thought that I don't know enough about this. I'm familiar with it some, but I'm going to tell you what really helps you find out what you actually know. You ready? Have kids. Let them start asking you some questions. You find out quick what you know and what you thought you knew. And I'll be honest with you, that has really helped me in ministering. How would I say this to my son who's sitting here tonight with Sarah on the front row? Justice, would you wave at everybody real quick? Stand and wave, son. That's Justice James, eight years old. And it has helped me and helped Sarah to think about these things, particularly things in the Word, how do we say it to them? Because we're raising another generation in the household of faith. And so I've just got on this little quest. Lord, teach me about the, the anointing. And I'm still on it. I'm still hungry for it. I'm standing in front of you tonight going, I still don't know what all there is to know about it. But, but the Lord has been faithful. It was so cool. It was just days or weeks after that. Uh, Brother Keith was in Africa. And he preached that message, the anointed one. And I was like, oh, thank you, Lord. I appreciate that. <laughs> Had to send Brother Keith all the way to Africa to answer my prayer, but I'm, I'm happy. Just a, what, a week or two after that, on a Friday night, this has just been a few weeks ago, June 1st. I know that because I was listening to it today. He preached a message in here called Yield to the Anointing. So if you've received anything from that, you're welcome. <laughs> this is an answer to my prayer. <laughs> this is an answer to my prayer. 
But is there anybody else in here tonight that would say, I'm hungry to know more about the anointing? I mean, if this is what makes us different, if this is what determines and draws the line between us and them, we need to know about it, the anointing. I want you to look at Luke chapter 4. And while you're looking for Luke 4, let me read something to you out of the book of Isaiah. I know you've heard it before, but listen to it again from chapter 10. Give me just a few minutes to lay some foundation here. I'm excited about where we're headed. Isaiah chapter 10. You're looking for Luke 4. We'll put this on the screen if we can. Isaiah chapter 10, verse 27. says, It shall come to pass in that day that his burden will be taken away from your shoulder and his yoke from your neck. And the yoke will be destroyed because of the anointing oil. So what is it that lifts the burden? The anointing. What is it that destroys the yoke? It's the anointing. The anointing oil. And what did the psalmist say? You have anointed me with a, what kind of oil? Did you catch that? Fresh. Somebody say it. Fresh oil. Anointed with fresh oil. That's what we're calling this tonight. Anointed with fresh oil. And you need that. We need to be freshened up. We need to get fresh, if you understand what I mean by that. You need a freshness in your fellowship with the Lord. You need a freshness in your walk with Him. You need a freshness in your praise, a freshness in your worship. I need a freshness in my preaching. I remember one time as a youth pastor, I decided one night, man, I'm going to pray more than I've ever prayed. I'm going to fast this whole day, and I'm going to shut out everything that's a distraction, and I'm just going to focus on the service. Focus, 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 focus. And I stood up that night, and I preached, and it was dry as a bone. It was so boring that I got to the end of that message and I stood back and I literally looked at the teenagers in the room and said, well, that was boring. I think I kind of stunned them all. I noticed nobody was like, oh, no, no, it was great. That's good. I think they probably agreed. But you can come there, even as a minister, you can come to that place, and I have more times than I want to admit, where I walk away and I say, Lord, I need something fresh. A fresh oil, a fresh anointing. Anybody else interested in a fresh oil tonight? Anointed with a fresh oil. Listen to what, again, to what the anointing does. It says that the burden will be taken away from your shoulder, the yoke from your neck, and the yoke will be destroyed because of the anointing. This is why Satan hates and is terrified of the anointing. Because it's the only thing that can lift a burden or destroy a yoke. And that's his whole business. He is in the burden building business. This is his line of work. This is his occupation. You've heard of the Better Business Bureau? Well, he's in the better, bigger burden building business. This is who Satan is. This is what he does. And he has worked tirelessly for generation after generation after generation to build the biggest burden, install the chokiest yoke, if you know what I mean by that. This is who he is and what he does. And this is why he's terrified of the anointing. Because he could work in your life or in somebody else's or in, in generations spanning across a family to build a burden so big and so heavy that they don't even realize they're under it anymore. They just call it living. 
This is what He does in the lives of people and will work so hard to instill a burden so heavy and a yoke so impossible to destroy. And the reason He hates the anointing is because a moment of it can completely lift it and destroy the whole thing. The anointing. That's what the anointing on you can do. That's what the anointing on me can do. And it's the only thing, bear in mind, that can actually lift a burden, that can actually destroy a yoke. Listen to this from another translation. In the uh, Amplified, again, the classic, it says, It shall be in that day that the burden shall depart from your shoulders and his yoke from your neck. The yoke shall be destroyed. I like this, because of fatness. Man, I like it when these words get translated different ways in different translations. It really gives you kind of a big picture of what all was packed into that word. The yoke's destroyed because of the anointing. How was it translated here? Because of fatness. I don't want to get into that too much, but suffice it to say, we all are familiar with, with it in one way or another. It's just too much. That's what fatness is. It's just too much. It's just growing to the point, excess, excess, excess. And watch this. He said, the yoke shall be destroyed because of fatness, which prevents it from going around your neck. You can come to the place where you have so grown in the anointing that you have increased and increased and increased that that yoke that used to fit so comfortably around your neck, Satan comes out one day and you have just outgrown that thing, completely shattered it, completely busted it, and he looks back at you and says, you broke my yoke. You broke my yoke. This is why he hates it. This is why he hates it. You know what the Young's literal translation says? says, the yoke shall be destroyed because of prosperity. That's good. So this word that got translated anointing also got translated fatness, increase. And it also got translated prosperity. Now you're listening. <laughs> what we want to hear about this. The anointing. What the anointing can do. And this is why... Satan hated the anointing that was on Jesus. Did you find Luke chapter 4? Listen to verse 17. It says, when Jesus was handed the book of the prophet Isaiah, he, he uh, had opened the book. He found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He has anointed me. Now I want you to see this connection between the Spirit of the Lord on him and the anointing on him. This is saying the same thing. He said, the Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me. Now whenever you see the anointing, it's always for something. It's always with an assignment. It's always to something. You never get just to, you never just get to say, I'm anointed for what? Nothing. Just to, you know, just to be greasy and oily and stand here and drip with all this fine oil. That's not what the anointing's for. It's for something. It's got purpose in it. Which might need some rewiring when we see that the yoke's destroyed because of prosperity. Oftentimes we see prosperity, but we fail to see the purpose in it. We're going to see that here in a moment. Jesus said, the Spirit of the Lord's on me because He has anointed me. Now you're going to hear... What he's anointed for. What's the purpose in it? The purpose of this anointing is to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal 
the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty all those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. This is what the anointing on Jesus was and is for. So you look at it, evidently, poverty is a burden. If it wasn't a burden, if it wasn't a yoke, then why would Jesus be anointed to do something about it? But evidently, it's a burden. Poverty is a burden, poverty is a yoke, and Jesus is anointed to lift that burden and destroy that yoke. Amen? It's a burden, it's a yoke. And Jesus is anointed to deal with it. What else is a burden? He said he sent me to, the heal, to heal the brokenhearted. A broken heart. This is more than just sad feelings. This is more than just sad emotions. A broken heart is a burden. A broken heart is a yoke. And it's one that people, for whatever reason, are willing to live with year after year after year after year. Something happened. Something was said. They were treated a certain way. Something went down in the family. And maybe it was hurtful. Maybe it was wrong. Don't misunderstand me. People are done wrong. Every single day of the world, somebody somewhere is being mistreated, treated unfairly, and things are being falsely said. They're being wrongly accused. This is why the scripture is so clear. Guard your heart. Above anything and everything else, guard it because out of it flows life. But what happens when that guard is down and whatever came against you got to your heart, that's a broken heart. And when there's a break there, if that's allowed to stay, it turns into a burden. It turns into a yoke that limits people in their lives. It limits how far they go with God. It certainly limits how far they go with other people. But the good news is, if you have had or have one sitting in here tonight, a broken heart, Jesus, come on, are you listening? Jesus is anointed to lift that burden and destroy that yoke. He's anointed to do it. He was anointed then to do it. He's anointed today to do it. Poverty is what? It's a blessing. It's a blessing in disguise. It's a blessing if you look hard enough. What is it? It's a burden. And it's a yoke. And Jesus is anointed to lift it and destroy it. A broken heart. What is this? this well, this is, this is God teaching you something. Right? This is God showing you something. And He's really speaking to you in this. He's speaking, and if you're not listening, that's your fault. But according to Jesus, a broken heart is what? It's a burden. And it's a yoke. And Jesus, my Savior, your Savior, Jesus, the anointed one, Jesus and his anointing, he is anointed to lift that burden and destroy that yoke. Come on, listen to this. It gets worse. He sent me to heal the brokenhearted. What else? To proclaim liberty to the captives. Being held captive by anything or to anything is a burden and it's a yoke. Captivity to anything. I don't care if it's a captivity to some sort of addiction. I don't care if it's captivity to some sort of, of fear. 
There are people all over the world held in the prison of fear. And like we said about a broken heart, these are not just feelings. Fear is not a feeling. It's a spirit. It's a spirit. And people are held prisoner to that spirit. I laugh because just a couple of weeks ago, Sarah and I were driving out of Fort Worth. We were on our way to Russellville, Arkansas to preach in the church that she grew up in when she was a little girl. And we're driving out of town, and somewhere about Atoka, Oklahoma, if you're headed out of Dallas-Fort Worth on 75 North, it turns into 69, and there in Atoka, we've driven this road, I don't know how many times before, but this particular trip just a few weeks ago, I saw a sign I'd never seen before. Just a sign on the side of the road, bright yellow sign, big, black, all capital letters, and you know what it said? It said, hitchhikers may be escaping inmates. And I thought, thank you. That's, that's, great. that's great information. Just, just keep that in mind as you drive. But the sign made more sense about a quarter mile later when we're passing on the other side of the road, this huge uh, facility, correctional facility, this prison, high fence, razor wire. Found out later, this, this place houses about a thousand men. This is a big prison. And the more I got to thinking about that sign, the more I got to thinking about that prison, the Lord began talking to me. He said, you know, there is a prison that holds not a thousand, not ten thousand, not a hundred thousand, but millions upon millions upon millions of people all over the world. And it's the prison of fear. And they're held captive by it. You know what a prison is? It's, it's restriction. Mobility is restricted. Because of walls, you've got freedom taken away. You can only go so far. And that's what's happening in people's lives because of fear. They're, they only go so far. And there's a wall up. There's, there's something that keeps them from stepping out beyond that wall. And if they're not just absolutely frozen in their tracks, then they're retreating and running away in fear. It's a prison. This is not a feeling, it's a spirit, and it's a prison. But I believe I'm looking at a room full of escaping inmates tonight. How about you? I love it. I love that. That sign is burned into my mentality. Hitchhikers may be escaping inmates. Well, we're coming out of this thing because fear and anything else that holds you captive is a burden, it's a yoke, but Jesus... Are you picking up on where we're headed with this tonight? Jesus is anointed to lift that burden and destroy that yoke. He was anointed to do it this day. He's anointed to do it today. What else does he say? Recovery of sight to the blind. Blindness. Sure, natural blindness. Sure, we can see how that would be a burden, how that would be a yoke. Can I tell you what's worse than being naturally blind? Spiritually blind. Living in complete darkness on the inside. Not knowing where to go, how to go, what's making you trip, what's making you fall. Can't see the pitfalls, can't see the dangers. Why? Just walking around in darkness. That's spiritual blindness. And this is why Paul, by the Spirit of God, prayed that the eyes of your heart would be flooded with light. I want you to see. Why? Because blindness is a burden. It's a yoke, and Jesus is anointed to lift that burden and destroy that yoke, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. You know this from Acts 10, 38. 
Peter was preaching about Jesus. And he said how God anointed him. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth, it's right up here, look at it, with the Holy Spirit. So isn't that what we just read in Luke 4? The Spirit of the Lord is on me. Why? Because He's anointed me. So look, you see it again. God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. This is, this is two or three ways of saying the same thing. You said anointing, you said Holy Spirit. When you said Holy Spirit, you said power. When you said power, you said anointing. He anointed Him with the Holy Spirit with power who went about doing good, healing all who were oppressed. How else could you say that? What is, what is oppression? It's a burden. It's a yoke around your neck. It's a burden on your shoulders. And evidently, sickness in no way, shape, or form is a blessing of any kind. It's satanic oppression. And Jesus was and is anointed to lift that burden and destroy that yoke. But now listen to this last part. For God was with him. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, went about doing good, healing all that were oppressed of the devil, for God was with him. There's another way of saying what the first word said, anointed. This is all just different ways of saying the same thing. When you said anointed, you said Holy Spirit. When you said Holy Spirit, you said power. When you said power, you said God is with you. When you said God is with you, you said anointed. Can you see this? This is the anointing that was and is on Jesus. Now, here's what's so cool. Anybody in here, and probably any member of the body of Christ around the world, would be quick to say Jesus was and is anointed. But the scripture is very clear about it in 1 John 2. We may get there by the end of this time tonight. He says, you have an anointing. Isn't that what he said? You have an anointing from the Holy One. I would say it to you like this. You have an anointing from the anointed. The anointed gave you some of his anointing. So the anointing you have is the anointing of the anointed. That's what he said. You have an anointing from the Holy One and you know all things. You know the truth. Somebody say it out loud. I'm anointed. One of the greatest things you'll ever find out in your life on this earth is what you are anointed to. What you are anointed for. What the Holy Spirit is on you to do. What God is with you to do. That's one of the greatest things any human being could ever find out. That's some of the greatest information, the greatest revelation that any one individual could ever come to realize. To have their eyes opened to any one truth, it would be this. What's the anointing on me to do? Because when you find that out, it changes things. It changes the way you live. Let me show this to you. Are you okay? You doing all right? Go back to the Old Testament. And look in the book of 1 Samuel. And we'll begin in chapter 10. The Lord drew my attention to this a number of weeks ago. And I just had it come up in my heart. Look at the anointing on Saul. 
You remember Saul, right? The first king of Israel. And I ended up here in 1 Samuel chapter 10. And you're going to see in his life a very crystal clear picture of what the anointing is, what the anointing can do. If you begin in verse 1, it says, Samuel took a flask of oil. Took a whole flask of it. They anointed people then a little differently than we do now. Or I should say a little different than we did in church when I was growing up. We did it. We anointed people. But it was that little thing that sat on the, the table between the speaker's chairs. And it was a, a vial maybe about that big. And we would take it. We'd put our finger in the top and do it real quick like that. Like we're putting on cologne or something. You know what I mean? And that's how we would anoint people like that. And I guess it's just because we didn't want to make a mess. But these guys were a little different. They were not afraid of just getting somebody good and greasy. (laughs) Samuel took a flask of oil. And how many of you know a little olive oil goes a long way? It goes a long way. I've been making fun of myself a little bit lately. Sarah asked me, it's been a month or so ago, we were getting ready to head out somewhere, and she's getting ready, and she said, would you mind making us some salads? Okay, you know me, right? Okay, sure, I'll give it a shot. So I'm just doing what I've seen her do, and I get the lettuce out, Kim, and I get all the veggies and all the different stuff, and I'm just kind of putting it all in the bowl. And what would Sarah do? WWSD, what would Sarah do with this salad? And I'm putting everything in there, and I thought, okay, it needs some dressing. Well, Sarah puts olive oil on our dressings. It's healthy, right? So put a little bit on there. And I think, well, that just doesn't look like very much. So I'll put a little more on there. I'm thinking, this, is, this looks like dry lettuce to me. I don't want to eat dry lettuce. So I end up putting so much olive oil. And I found out in the kitchen that day, a little oil goes a long way. Because when Sarah came out and it was time to eat her soggy salad, she just looked at it and kind of smirked, kind of smiled. And just, you know, You're so cute, she basically said to me. And she ate her salad, but when she got done, I noticed it sitting over there by the sink and all the stuff is gone. It's just a big pile of soggy lettuce. Why? Because a little oil, somebody help me out, goes a long way. But these guys, you know what they did? They had a whole flask of this stuff. And they would pour it on you until it was gone. Isn't that what the psalmist said? How good and how pleasant it is for brethren, family, to dwell together in unity. Who remembers what he said it was like? It's like the oil, he said. He said, it's like the oil on the head of Aaron that went to his beard, that went to his garment, that went down to the edge of his garment. This brother is covered up in this stuff. I want you to get the picture of this. Let the Word of God paint a picture for you. Samuel took this flask of oil, poured it on his head, and kissed him and said, Is it not because the Lord has anointed you commander over his inheritance. And he begins explaining to him over these next several verses what's about to happen in your life from this day forward because you're anointed. And if you skip down to verse 6, listen to this. He says, Then the Spirit of the Lord will come on you. Is that not what Jesus just said? So here again you see the connection. The Spirit of the Lord on you and the anointing. He said, The Spirit of the Lord will come on you. You will prophesy... And you will be turned into another man. That is how you explain the anointing to an eight-year-old. Because they all understand Superman. 
They all understand that. And if you go back a couple of generations, they all understand Popeye. Right? This is, this is way more spiritual than you know. Popeye. What would happen in every episode? And I mean every single one. He's just chilling with his girl. Right? What's her name? Oh. Type of the Holy Spirit. <laughs> Probably not. Don't quote me on that. It could be. But there's this other guy who's really into Popeye's girl too, right? Who remembers him? Bluto? Brutus? I think there might have been a couple of them. Every episode, Brutus comes along and he's got eyes for, for olive oil. So he does what you do when you fancy a young lady. Kidnaps her. <laughs> ties her up with ropes and puts her on a train track, right? And Popeye's not having it. So they're going to get in a fight. But every, every single episode, Brutus, Bluto, whoever it is, is just pummeling him and just pounding him into the ground one punch after another. And poor Popeye doesn't stand a chance, right? Because Brutus is this towering, seven-foot, 295-pound machine of a man. And Popeye's just this little guy until, right? Until he reaches in his pocket... Pulls out his can of spinach, like you do, eats the spinach, and all of a sudden, help me out, he's another man. All of a sudden, he's somebody else. All of a sudden, his strength has been exalted. You thought we were straying from our point here, but we're not. Listen to me. All of a sudden, he's turned into somebody else. Do you not see that this is what he said the anointing will do on your life? He's explaining to Saul, here's what's about to happen. This anointing that's coming on you, the Spirit of the Lord is coming on you, and you're about to be somebody else. You're about to be turned into somebody else. He said, you're going to prophesy and be turned into another man. He had told him, that in just a few days or just, just shortly after this encounter, there's going to come, he's prophesying to him and saying, there's going to come a band of prophets. And he's literally a band. These guys playing instruments and they're going to come down the mountain and you're going to cross paths with them and you're going to prophesy and you're going to be turned into another man. Now for this to be significant to us, it would help to know who Saul was before this happened. If you back up to chapter 9, in verse 1 it says there was... A man of Benjamin, other translations say he was a wealthy man. It's talking about Saul's dad. There was a wealthy man of the tribe of Benjamin whose name was Kish. Verse 2 says he had a choice and handsome son. This is Saul. Choice and handsome. I don't know exactly what choice means, but you get it, don't you? He's choice. He's handsome. And the Bible says in verse 2, there was not a more handsome person than he among the children of Israel. My friends, if the Bible says you're the best looking dude in the country, you are the best looking brother in the entire country. The Bible's not exaggerating about this guy. He's choice. He's so handsome. He's the best looking one in Israel. Not only that, it says from his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. This is a lot of young ladies' vision list right here. <laughs> right here. Choice, handsome. Middle Eastern, so you know he's dark. Tall, dark, <laughs> handsome. Got some money. Comes from money. We won't take time to read the whole thing, but what basically happened was Saul's dad, Kish, 
lost some donkeys. Don't you hate it when that happens? The donkeys got out, and he sent Saul out to get the donkeys. And they go looking for the donkeys, and they've been out there three days, and they can't find these donkeys. These are some fast-moving donkeys. Saul can't find the donkeys, and he says, we got to go home. Dad's going to be worried about me. And the servant says, wait, there's a prophet that lives somewhere around here. We find him. We'll ask him where the donkeys are. He'll do his thing. He'll tell us where the donkeys are. It'll be great. We'll go home with the donkeys. And Saul says, fine, let's go find the prophet. So they're walking along. They're looking for the prophet, and they come across a group of young ladies. So here's this choice. Handsome. Best looking dude in the country, taller than everybody, coming from money kind of guy, walks up to the group, this group of girls. Now, the Bible doesn't record how awkward it was when all those girls just started blushing and just, he's talking to me, he's talking to me. And he says to these group of girls, have you seen the prophet? And they said, yeah, he's right up there. Go quick, you can get him. So they run and they chase down Samuel. But in verse 15 of chapter 9, it says, The Lord had told Samuel in his ear the day before Saul came, saying, Tomorrow about this time I'll send you to a man of the land of Benjamin. He said, I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin. You will anoint him commander over my people, that he may save my people from the hand of the Philistines, for I've looked upon my people, because their cries come to me. So when Samuel saw Saul, the Lord spoke to him and said, There he is. There he is. So Samuel, or Saul, excuse me, starts asking Samuel, have you seen my donkeys? And Saul answered him, and, or excuse me, Samuel answered him, and uh, he said to him in verse 20, as for your donkeys that were lost three days ago, don't be anxious about them, they've been found. And then he adds this to it, and on whom is all the desire of Israel? Is it not on you and on all your father's house? Saul hears this, and I want you to hear his response in verse 21. Saul answered and said, Am I not a Benjamite? Notice his words. Of the smallest of the tribes of Israel, and my family the least of all the families? Notice what he says to him. Why then do you speak to me like this? One translation says, Why do you talk to me like I'm important? It's interesting to me. It's just a good indicator that you never know what's going on inside somebody. Now here's a guy who on the outside has every right and reason to be confident, right? Choice. Tall, dark, handsome. Comes from money. But when he came face to face with the anointing on his life, What did he say? I'm the smallest. I'm the least. Why do you speak to me like I'm somebody important? This is insecurity. This is timidity. And this is fear. Somebody help me out. What's the anointing do to all this stuff? Lifts that burden. Destroys that yoke. That's why when you get to chapter 10 and Samuel pours all that oil on him and said, it's because of the anointing on you. And he says, the Spirit of the Lord's coming on you and you're going to be turned into somebody else. That's who you were. You're about to be somebody different. And sure enough, in verse 7 it says, Samuel said to him, let it be when these signs come to you that you do 
as the occasion demands. For God is with you. God is with you. Is this not what it said about Jesus? Went about doing good. Healing all that were oppressed of the devil. How? Why? Where'd the power come from? What was the source for that? God was with him. Every impossible thing made possible in the life and the ministry of Jesus was the result of the anointing and God with him. Every one of them. Now listen to me. If Jesus, if Jesus needed the anointing, what do you think you need? What do you think I need? The anointing. This is why I tell you this is some of the most precious, some of the most valuable information, the most wonderful revelation you'll ever come across in your life. What's the anointing on me for? What's the anointing in me to do? And I've come to the place even recently, even, even just within the last few days, the last few weeks, I've come to a place in my own ministry where I am determined I am, I am not going to minister without the anointing. And I would way rather minister to 50 people with the anointing than to 5,000 without it. Why? Because it's the only thing that will actually lift a burden or destroy a yoke. That's it. And if I've preached a room full of people, stadium full of people, 5,000, 10,000 people, and I stand there and I preach and all, all the words sound good and they're all strung together just right, but there's no anointing, then not one burden was lifted. And not one yoke was destroyed. The Lord's been talking to me, like I said, about the anointing and giving me a number of words for it. And there's, I want to tell you some things tonight, and I want this to stick with you. Number one, inspect for the anointing. Do you know what the word inspect, not insect, inspect <laughs> means? It doesn't just mean to look at. It means to look closely look closely for. Here's the truth. Somebody's gift, a gift is a wonderful thing. A gift can be from God. And a gift has the ability to fill up a room. A gift has an ability to wow people. A gift has an ability to impress people. A gift can do great things, but you know what a gift can't do? It cannot lift a burden. And it cannot destroy a yoke. Only the anointing can do that. And this is what I love about you and I being a part of this family. As you can come into this place every Friday, every Sunday, and be confident that what you're hearing is not just a gifted word, it's an anointed word. And that what you're hearing and what you're feeding on has the ability in it to lift a burden and destroy a yoke. But I'm going back through, and, and anything, if I'm listening to anything, if I'm receiving from anywhere, I take just a moment and I inspect, is there anointing? Am I being wowed by the anointing? Or, my, am, or excuse me, am I being wowed by a gift? Or am I being blessed by the anointing? Inspect. Look closely. We are not in need of more gifted preachers, more gifted singers, more gifted people. We've got a lot of them. What this world needs is you anointed anointed and what the anointing will do on you it'll do the same thing on you that it did on Saul turn you into somebody else now think about this guy 
You know from the one way he answered Samuel, the level of insecurity and fear and timidity that's in him. Why are you talking to me like somebody who's important? And the anointing starts going to work and starts changing that. But Samuel was clear with him. He said, here's what's going to happen. The prophets are going to come. The Spirit of the Lord's going to come on you. The anointing's going to be present. That anointing that's consecrating you to this office, that anointing that's equipping you to do this, it will be there. But did you notice the other instruction? See that you do all that the occasion demands. See, you still have to cooperate with it. Now think about that. I know there are people in here, maybe many, who could identify with the guy Saul was before the anointing. I mean, what if we did an experiment tonight and I just pulled somebody out of the crowd and I handed you a microphone and I said, prophesy. Prophesy. Many of us would not know what to say, not know what to do, uh, 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 and, and just be at a loss, at a total loss, not know how to function in front of people. So Saul had a choice to make. Even though the anointing was present, even though God was with him, he had to yield to it. He had to yield to the anointing. And thank God he did. It happened just the way Samuel said it was going to happen. The prophets, the prophets came and prophesied. Verse 9, it says that when he had turned his back to go from Samuel, God gave him another heart and they came to the hill. There was a group of prophets to meet him and the Spirit of God came on him. And he prophesied among the people. And it happened when all who knew him formerly... I like this. All who knew him formerly... What's knew him formerly mean? Like yesterday like before the anointing. All who knew him formerly saw that he indeed prophesied among the prophets, and the people said to one another, What is this that has come upon the son of Kish? Can I give you my translation? What got into this guy? What got into Saul? Everybody who knew him before the anointing knew that timid guy, knew that shy guy, knew that guy gripped with fear. And now all of a sudden he's standing up there with prophets prophesying. Here's a big key, a big indicator that you're living and walking and operating under the anointing, an uncommon boldness, an uncommon confidence comes up on the inside of you. And, and I know sometimes we talk about people, especially ministers, and we say about them, you know, man, that guy Dave, he's awesome. He, and, and he's the same way at home as he is in the pulpit. And I know, I know that's a good thing. It's talking about integrity and, and character, and we need that. But there's also supposed to be this thing that comes on you, and all who knew you formerly look at you and say, what got into you? What got all over you? All those who knew you before you found out what the anointing was on you. All those who knew you before you came in contact with that burden, removing, yoke, destroying power of God. Anybody, anybody in your family, anybody that you work with, anybody that you go to church with that knew you formerly, now they see you living and operating under the anointing and they look at you and they look at each other and go, what got in to this guy? What got into you? Come on, help me. What's the answer? The anointing. Turn you in to somebody else. Same thing happened to David. The anointing left Saul. 
This was another word the Lord gave me about it. Not only do we inspect for the anointing, we protect the anointing. Saul didn't value it enough, didn't honor it enough to protect it. And he made some decisions out of pride and how he looked in front of people. And he lost the anointing. And God spoke to Samuel and said, go to the house of Jesse, I want you to anoint another one. And so he did, and Jesse brought his sons out. And he started with the first one. You know what the Bible says about him? Tall, handsome, choice. And you know what Samuel said? Surely the Lord's anointed. But what did God say? He said, no, inspect. Look closer. You're looking at the outside. But God said to him, I don't look out here. I don't see as man sees. What Samuel saw was one that looked like what God did before. But God said, no, look at the heart. With Saul, God had to put a new heart in him. With David, the heart was already there. He's a man after my own heart. He said, look at the heart. And you know what happened? Jesse paraded one son after the other, after the other, after the other. And Samuel said, this isn't, this isn't him. You have any more? He said, yeah, I got one, but he's just a kid. He's out in the field with the sheep. Go get him. And brought him in. Did the same thing with him that they did with Saul. Took that flask of oil and just greased him up. And the Bible says that from that day forward, the Spirit of the Lord was with him. The Spirit of the Lord was with him. And remember what Samuel said to Saul. When you're anointed, you've got to see that you do as the occasion demands. See, when you find out what the anointing is on your life, when you ask the Lord to give you eyes that see, you'll find that you're constantly stepping into situations and occasions that are there to put a demand on the anointing that's on you. This is how I'm treating any invitation that comes to us in our ministry, will you come minister here? Go before the Lord. Find out if we're supposed to do it. If the Lord says yes, then my thought process goes immediately to, okay, evidently there's something in the anointing that God has put on our lives that is in demand in that occasion. And it requires a confidence and a godly boldness to stand in that pulpit and to say, whatever's going on here is in demand of the anointing. It requires the same confidence out of you. Because there are things going on around you in the, in the workplace, in your home, things happening in the lives of your family and different people all around you. And they are going on and you are being made aware of it for one reason. It's an, it's an occasion that's placing a demand on that anointing that's on you. And when you get into that occasion, see that you do all the occasion demands. I mean, what would you think what would you think of a doctor? Say a doctor was just not at work. He was just out in a restaurant, on an airplane, in any public place. And you've seen this played out in television, movies, maybe even real life. Something happens in another person. They, something's going on in their body and they're violently attacked with something and they fall to the ground and somebody rushes over and what's the first thing that person who rushes over, what do they shout? Is there a doctor in the house, Right? What would you think of a doctor who's got the knowledge, the understanding, and the ability to do something about that, but can't be bothered to get involved? 
What would you think about that? What would you think if you found out this person laid there suffering and maybe even lost life and you found out that there was somebody just in the same room down the aisle, across the row, who had the ability to do something about it? Is there a doctor in the house? What would you think of that person? Hmm? Not much. Folks, this is happening. Maybe people aren't saying it in these words, but people who are talking to you and venting about every dramatic thing that's going on in their life and every, every sickness in their family and every financial problem and every marital problem. Do you want to know what they're saying? Is there a doctor in this house? Is there a believer in this house? Is there faith in this house? Is there a testimony in this house that I could hear? Is there an anointing in the house? But what would you think of somebody who sat there with the anointing, the faith, the knowledge of God, the understanding of His Word, the experience with Him, but because of fear wouldn't get involved? Afraid of what they might think. You stepped into an occasion that put a demand on your anointing, but you didn't yield to it. You know the New Testament talks to us about not quenching the Spirit? This is how you quench Him, right here. By not yielding to Him. But when you come eye to eye and face to face with the anointing that's on your life, the next thing is to just live with eyes wide open stepping into an occasion where there might be a demand on that anointing. David was anointed. And from that, from the, that moment forward, God created an occasion here, an occasion there that put a demand on that anointing. Saul was troubled by a spirit. And what happened? God created an occasion for David to come and the anointing on him drove out that spirit. There was one day that David stepped right in the middle of an occasion that demanded the anointing. His dad told him, here, take some food to your brothers there on the battlefield. And he showed up, and there was this great big Brutus-looking dude standing out there, cursing the God of Israel, cursing the army of Israel, and every single person, Saul included, retreated in fear. And David showed up, and you know what he started saying? What do I get when I kill this guy? What do I get if I kill this guy? And they start telling him, you get the king's daughter, you get his money, you get no taxes in your family forever. And David said, what was that part about the daughter? <laughs> Tell me that part again. What do I get if I kill this guy? I'm telling you, somebody anointed stands out. Somebody anointed, somebody bold, somebody confident, somebody an escaping inmate from the prison of fear. <laughs> This person stands out, especially when everybody else around you is gripped with the stuff. And this, it got around so much that David's talking about killing this guy. He got hauled before Saul. And David said to Saul, hey, don't worry about him. I'll kill him. I'll do it for you. And Saul looked at him and said, you can't do this. You're a youth. And he's been a warrior since his youth. And David started preaching. He said, king... I was keeping my father's sheep in the field and a lion came and a bear came and I killed them both with my own hands. Now, I don't know when that was, but I guarantee you it was after the anointing. 
Because it turns you into somebody else. And he said, this no covenant Philistine will be no different than any of those guys. Any of those, the lion or the bear. And you know what Saul said? Go. And the Lord be with you. What happened from there? Saul took his armor and tried to put it on David. You remember this? Now, what do we know about Saul? What do we know already? He's a tall guy. He's really, really tall. Much taller than anybody else, including this teenager. And yet he tries to put his armor on him. That's a strange move, don't you think? Here's what I think is going on. Saul's armor has the markings of the king. This is not just a general enlisted man's armor. This is the king's armor. And when this armor shows up on the battlefield, every soldier in that army knows who's in that armor. Even if you can't see his face, you know exactly who that is. I believe Saul knew exactly what was about to happen. I think he heard David preach and he knew that David's about to go out there, kill this giant and embarrass him and every soldier in that army. How would he know that? Because I believe he saw something on David that used to be on him. What was it? The anointing. Saul recognized it. He said, man, I've been there. I remember this boldness. I remember this confidence. And he said, go. But then he tried to dress him up like him. I think it's because he knew what was about to happen. And I firmly believe that it's because he wanted, when David went out there and killed Goliath, Saul wanted this entire army to know that either one, that was Saul doing it, or it was a Saul-sanctioned fight. And he tried to dress him up in his identity. What did David say? Basically, this doesn't fit. <laughs> You're huge, man. I can't, I've never tested this. I can't wear this. And he took it off. You can't fight your fight under somebody else's identity. And especially under somebody else's anointing that they don't even have. You want to fight and win? Do it under the anointing that he's given you. Under the identity that he's called you with. That's why David ran out there and ran at Goliath and said, I come at you in the name of the Lord. And you know what happened. The anointing turned this shepherd boy into a literally stone cold killer. (laughs) Did he not? Turned him into somebody else. That's what the anointing does. That's what the anointing will do. Brother Hagen, I was listening to him on this one message and I've been listening to it over and over listen to it again today and there's about a five minute segment of this message where he's talking about Smith Wigglesworth and I just keep listening to it and listening to it and listening to it and Brother Hagen was talking about Smith Wigglesworth and he said you know I never heard him preach but I knew a man who used to listen to him all the time and this he said he was an older gentleman from Southern California and Brother Hagen I guess was kind of interviewing this man about Smith Wigglesworth and this man said, you know, he would come out and he had no education. He went and worked in a factory at six years old. No education whatsoever. Couldn't read, couldn't write. 
And this man would tell Brother Hagin, he said, you know, he, Smith Wigglesworth would take the pulpit and he'd begin to preach. And he said it was almost awkward because he really couldn't put one word after another. He said it was confusing, really just couldn't string even two sentences together. But this man told Brother Hagin, he said, but then something would change. He said, you could see it. He said, the Spirit of the Lord would come on him. His whole countenance would change. He would begin then just to preach one word right after the other. And you know what this man told Brother Hagin? He said, it's like he turned into somebody else. What was it? The anointing. Did you know the anointing that did that to Saul? The anointing that did that to David? The anointing that did that to a man named Smith Wigglesworth? The anointing that did it to Jesus. Because he lived 30 years without it. Never once tempted that we know of, of the devil. Never once came under attack until he came up out of the waters of baptism, anointed by God, turned into another man. Every miracle, every message every dead raised, every blind eye opened, every impossible thing made possible was the result of the anointing and who it made Jesus. It will do the same thing on you. Amen. It'll do the same thing. Turn you into somebody else. Who remembers... I'll be finishing probably soon. Probably. Who remembers where Jesus was reading from there in the temple when He said, The Spirit of the Lord's on me? Isaiah what? Chapter 61. We could go and look at it, but if you keep reading in those verses where it talks about the anointing and what the anointing does and what it's for, he began talking to the people about the anointing exchange. And he talked to them about giving them the oil of joy. The oil of joy. And the exchange was the oil of joy for the Spirit of heaviness. He talked about it in connection with the garment of praise. There was an exchange that took place. The oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. You know, there's a big deal made out of, right now especially in church culture, there's a big deal made out of church clothes. I'm, I'm old enough to remember being a kid and you actually had church clothes. Anybody remember church clothes? As a kid, you had clothes that you wore to church and nowhere else, right? You don't go play in church clothes. Those are church clothes. You don't wear church clothes to school. Those are church clothes. Don't mess up your church clothes. Don't get your church clothes dirty. I remember church clothes. And there's a big deal now, you know, what are, what are church clothes supposed to look like? Are we dressy? Are we casual? And, you know, the Word has something to say about it. But I'm going to tell you something. God is way more interested in the clothes that you and I wear because we are the church as opposed to the ones that we wear just to the church. And he's got some things to say about what we wear to the church. But what's more important to him than what you wear to the church is what you wear because you are the church. And when he talked to you about the garment of praise, them's your church clothes. That's what you and I are to be wearing, not just to the church, but because we are the church. This oil of joy, this garment of praise. This is what we wear because we are the church. That's why Paul wrote to the churches and said, put off the old man and put on the new man. 
You look at the language, it's literally the same language you would use to tell somebody, go change your clothes. Put off what you're wearing, put on something else. Now, when you were a kid, your mom, you know, dictated what you were going to wear, the church clothes. Men, we know that. How much has changed now? Not much, not enough, right? Every man, every man, I promise you, has come out of the bedroom closet, stepped into the living room where his wife and children were waiting, only to be looked from head to toe and back to head again and to hear that question, is that what you're going to wear? Come on, man. Anybody anybody bold enough, honest enough? Is that what you're going to wear? If you didn't know this already, let me translate for you. She really said, that's not what you're going to wear. She's, she's like, come on, look, stripes and plaids and the shorts with the black socks and the sandals. And please, for, for, for the love of all that's holy and for the sake of your family, go back in there, take that off and put something else on. Because it does not match. It does not coordinate. You know, the Bible talks to you and I about being not conformed to this world, but being transformed. The word conformed literally means to have an outward appearance that does not look like the inward condition. To put something on the outside that doesn't look like what's going on on the inside. But the word Conformed, did I say that right? Conformed, that's what that means. Transformed literally means to have an inward condition that produces the outward appearance. And I've experienced this. I know you have too. You're in confrontation with somebody. Somebody said something. Man, it got you. And whether you're one of those kind of people that just knows what to say right there on the spot, or maybe you're more like me. Give me a night. Give me just this night and I'll lay in bed wide awake staring up into the nothingness and I will formulate a comeback and oh, this is what I should have said. You know, you know what I'm talking about. And then just hope and pray and wish that the next day you find yourself back in that same situation again and that same guy says that same thing because this time you're ready, right? This time, here it comes and, and sure enough, they say it again and here it comes up out of you and just before it comes out of your mouth, the Holy Spirit on the inside says, um, <clears throat> is that what you're going to wear? <laughs> is that what you're about to put on? Because that does not match what's going on in here. And the same thing's true with the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, the oil of joy. There's something going on in you. There's joy on the inside. And this is supposed to be one of those things that makes us different than everybody else. Joy should be definitively Christian. This should be the line between us and them. And what did the psalmist say? What's the first thing we read tonight? My strength. My strength you have exalted like a wild ox. That's strong. When you got the strength of an ox, you have been turned into something else. Right? 
And I don't care if it's mental strength or physical strength or financial strength. When you've got that kind of strength that's beyond human ability, it's because something got in you and started working in you and has turned you into something else. Well, what is, where's our strength come from? Joy. The joy of the Lord is our strength. And we are supposed to be full of joy. And the longer you sit around wearing the spirit of heaviness, dressed up in that ugly stuff, you are going to hear the voice of the Holy Spirit before you leave one day dressed in that spirit, dressed in the broken heart, dressed in the depression, dressed in the discouragement. You will hear the Holy Spirit say, wait a second, wait a second, is that what you're going to wear? So what are you going to do? Go change. Go change. Don't go out wearing that stuff. Go change. Go take that off and put on the garment of praise. How do you do it? How do you do it? Your words. You take that stuff off with your words. You say, Father, in Jesus' name, I am done with the spirit of heaviness. I take this stuff off. This doesn't belong on me. I don't have any more use for this stuff. I have been anointed like Jesus with the oil of joy. And I put on joy in Jesus' name. I put on strength in the name of Jesus. And I rise up and I bless you. And I thank you. And I praise you. Now go out. Now you look presentable. This is supposed to be us. This is the difference between us and them. The oil of joy. Anointed with this fresh oil. Amen. Amen. Would you stand up on your feet with me? I've kept you a long time tonight. In a moment we're going to sing. And I think, guys, we should do that one. This is the anointing, yeah. I told you the Lord had given me a number of words concerning the anointing. Inspect for it. I want this to stick with you. Inspect. Look closely for it. Inspect for it in your own life. Inspect for it in what you're listening to and what you're receiving from. And ask yourself, am I being wowed by a gift or am I being changed by the anointing? Protect the anointing. The anointing is the most, one of the most valuable things you possess. And it's worth protecting it. Saul lost it because of pride. Do you remember a guy named Samson? Everybody's got this picture in their mind of Samson. Huge, strong. There's nothing in the scripture that paints him in that light. All we know about him is something like five different times the Spirit of the Lord came mightily on him. Turned him into somebody else. For all you know, Samson looked like me. I like that. I go with that. And the Spirit of the Lord came on him, turned him in to somebody else. But he lost it because he didn't protect it. And you might look at his life and you think, oh yeah, bad relationships and and he was with women that he shouldn't have been with. And sure, that's the truth. But you know where he lost it? He lost it, began losing it the day he said, I have slain thousands. Do you know what arrogance is? Arrogance is is confidence minus the awareness of Jesus. Minus the awareness of the anointing. And he lost it. He lost his strength. When the anointing left, 
the strength left. But David, he, he did some of the same dumb stuff Samson did. Bad relationships with a woman he shouldn't have been with. How did he protect his anointing? Quick to repent. Humility. Humility will protect the anointing on your life. Quick to repent. Quick to say, I missed it. Quick to acknowledge it. It'll protect the anointing. Inspect for the anointing. Protect the anointing. And finally, respect. Have a value and an honor for the burden-removing, yoke-destroying power of God. Many cultures, they exalt the person, the minister, the preacher, the pastor, to a point where it's not healthy and it's not right. But in other church cultures, we've become so casual that we quit respecting the anointing that's on an individual. And if you don't respect, if you don't have value and honor for the anointing, you can't receive from it. Jesus, that day, He said, the Spirit of the Lord's on me because He's anointed me. He was in His own hometown. And what did they say? Oh, praise God, He's anointed. No. They said, what are you talking about, anointed? We know you. Your family's here. This is getting too familiar. They said, get down from there. And Jesus said, a prophet's not without honor except in his own hometown. There he could do no mighty works. Where there wasn't respect for the anointing, the anointing couldn't operate. Where there's no value for the anointing, the anointing can't do anything for you. But if you come into this place and you sit ready to hear this word that's preached from this pulpit and you say, I value that anointing, I respect that anointing, I honor that anointing, get ready because that anointing is about to value, respect, and honor you. Lift a burden and destroy a yoke. Amen. Let me pray for you. Then we're going to sing and I'll turn it back over today. Father, I come before you tonight. And I ask, sir, for this fresh oil that we've heard about. I ask you, Lord, to bring every person in here who's willing to come face to face with your anointing, your grace on their lives. And show them, Lord, show every one of us when we're about to step into an occasion that is placing a demand on that anointing. And we will yield to it. In Jesus' name. Why don't you say this out loud? Say, the Spirit of the Lord is on me because He has anointed me. Say, I'm anointed with an anointing from the anointed. And I can do all things through the anointing that strengthens me. Can we sing this? Go for it, guys. This is the anointing that abides in me. This is the anointing.